I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts. Elizabeth Smart found special coverage with David Dijanovic on KSL News Radio. I'm really excited uh, that we're about to learn um, from somebody I know for years a lot about what we didn't know, what was going on behind the scenes um, in 2002 and 2003 when Elizabeth Smart was kidnapped and missing for nine months. Uh, there's a new book that was released today. Today. Uh, the title of it is Unexpected. The author is Chris Thomas. He's sitting in studio with Dave and I right now. Um, and he really goes into so many details about what was going on behind the scenes leading up to the point where she was found alive. Um, I remember speaking to her dad at SMART after uh, she was found alive. And in fact, um, all of the media... I remember surrounding him. I think it was right outside the police department or right outside their home, probably both places. Elizabeth and Mary Catherine just hugged and were just bawling. And uh, we had, William was playing with his friend across the street this afternoon. And when he came in there, I mean, it was just a big hug. And and, uh, Elizabeth didn't want to let go of him. And it's just, uh, it's just so great. It's uh, it's a miracle. It's a miracle, and talking about the family reunion. Yeah, as as incredible a story as we've ever had in this state, and it's unsurprising if you've been through it, if you follow this story, that we can't let it go. We still have a fascination, even twenty years later. No one lived it more, other than the family, than Chris Thomas, who is the author of Unexpected. Um, the book that is out today. You are also the public relations point person for the family. You were kind of thrown into this at a very young age, 20-something, 29 years old. Paint us a picture as the PR person. You get the call that this family needs help, um, and you get there, and then all of a sudden the entire world of media comes running, and you're dealing with the family's emotions, the protecting the family from the media, and the main goal of finding Elizabeth. You know, I, I think that's a big part of the book is trying to describe that, Debbie. It's it's not something that you can easily put into perspective. Uh, going back to that, a lot of people ask, how did you get involved? And Elizabeth's cousin, Sierra, started an internship with my firm two weeks before Elizabeth was abducted. And we had a lot of other connections as well. My business partners at the time were connected to the family in several ways. And it was like it was meant to be. We volunteered to help. 
thinking that it would be a couple of days. They'd find her. You know, she'd be alive. We'd go to celebration. We'd go back to our day jobs, and that would be it. And amazing, we're talking about it 20 years later. But at that time, it was 20-hour days. Uh, at one point, there were eight of us working full-time with the media. I, I counted 80 cameras at one press conference. Uh, just the sheer number of, of media and national and international media trying to get anything. And, and it was a difficult case, Dave. I think we talked about this early on, where some days there was not a lot going on. Yeah. And so how do you feed the beast? Uh, and I almost, you know, I'm a former journalist, and so a lot of this was, okay, the search effort's taking place. You know, 10,000 people have come out this week. Who are they? Where are they searching? How are they searching? You know, trying to find information that we could provide so that the media could tell a decent story. But it was nonstop. And then as, as the investigation developed, it felt like things were happening constantly. Uh, it felt like you know, being in a newsroom, but on steroids and, and it never ends. So having that direct contact with the, the family and trying to juggle these emotions where they are mourning, they're terrified, and then at the same time having this understanding that because this story is in the media, it provides other resources and it keeps the story going and volunteers pour out. What was the, the family going through as they're torn talking about the worst possible thing that could happen and still dealing with uh, their own emotions? You know, it, it was a mix of emotions and seeing that I had to be very clinical in my approach uh, and, and I would feel it. And sometimes at the end of the day, after putting on a straight face uh, that, you know, it would come out and it would be, it would be really heavy. They were the most courageous people I've ever worked around. Uh, they understood, made it very clear, like if we're going to cooperate there, you know, the media is a two edged sword. Uh, they, they'll, they'll cut and help get the story out and they'll cut you apart as well. None of us are perfect. All of us have flaws and skeletons in our closet and they're, and they're going to find those out and you're just going to have to deal with the good, bad and indifferent. And they said, we don't care what it takes. We don't care what they do to us. Whatever it takes to bring Elizabeth back, we're willing to do it. Eventually, uh, the Salt Lake Tribune, during the search for Elizabeth, ends up writing an article that alludes that the kidnapping was an inside job, that a family member or family members had something to do with that. You spell that out in your book, and it took me back to... 2002, 2003, when negative stories about the family were beginning to surface, which took the eye off the, the, the prize, which was recovering Elizabeth safely. And that really ends up kind of quashing the search efforts. I think you wrote that searchers stopped showing up after that article. Largely. Which, which, was, which was not accurate, that the family was not involved at all in her kidnapping. Uh, but that you said just put a, put a damper on search efforts. You know, it was it was a different phase at that point. It's interesting in hindsight. Maggie Haberman, the Pulitzer Prize winning uh, journalist with the New York Times, who covers the White House, she was the first one to write a book about the Smart case, and she likened that Tribune story as igniting a firestorm that threatened to rival the John Benet Ramsey case. And so it changed from that point of telling this nice story about the search effort and working around the police and the investigation to how do we make sure that the story and, and Elizabeth are kept top of mind? Uh, how does the family and, and, you know, attorneys come out in situations like that and they categorically deny and it's without merit and all those things. And as a public, what do we say when we hear that? I roll. 
I roll. Exactly. And so, you know, the only thing there's no there's no evidence to say they weren't involved. So the best thing they can do is go out and explain how they cooperated and continue to come out. Uh, you know, the 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 Ramsey family, um, to their detriment, we learned from this, they they hunkered down and sent their attorney out. Uh, we did the opposite. We put as many members of the smart family as possible, tried to do it in a controlled way to show that they had nothing to hide, that they would continue to cooperate and be public. I Oh, I, I want to continue down this path. I just can I just have a few more minutes, Dave, with with Chris on this. The I covered the police investigation from the very beginning. I remember the Salt Lake City Chief of Police meeting me on the sidewalk uh, the morning after up at Shriners Hospital, and I was trying to get an interview with Elizabeth Smart's mom, Lois, and she became unavailable for for obvious reasons. Um, but along the way, my feeling was in this case, this is just my personal view from covering the story that Salt Lake City Police Department did not seem like they could hit water if they fell out of a boat on this. There was an attempted kidnapping of Elizabeth Smart's cousin, which you write about in the book, and I was fully aware of in July, shortly after she was kidnapped up in Cottonwood Heights, where somebody cuts through a screen and they write that off as a teenage prank. It it was Brian David Mitchell trying to get to Elizabeth Smart's cousin because he was a pedophile looking to take on, quote unquote, more wives. And Elizabeth was victim number one. Her cousin was almost victim number two. And we have, and you write about this, the police department really dismissed that. Not only did they dismiss it, they told the family and, and me to lie about it. If you're asked about it, under no circumstances does this come public. We've got to be able to investigate this fully. I believe they were sending the window screen to Quantico, Virginia, to the FBI to analyze. I mean, it was like, you got to give us time. And, and at one point, I had to give a very creative answer to KSL's Ben Winslow at the time. Uh, and, and, and a month later, when it finally came out, the national media was gone. It was kind of during that period, the interest waned, the satellite trucks picked up, and and, and the police could then say, yeah, we think it was a teenage prank. Uh, and so it was unfortunate because if you really think about that, the, there was just too many, too many ironies. Okay, we don't believe in coincidences, deep. right? We, right. Especially in – I'm not a cop, but in police work, we just don't believe in coincidences. And literally her cousin's – her favorite cousin's home in Cottonwood Heights, uh, just you know, a few miles away from where Elizabeth was kidnapped. And not only that, Chris, they, they make the prime suspect, Richard Reesey – arrest him within days of the kidnapping, and hits the wrong dude. And they will not, despite the fingerprints inside the home, not matching Richard Reese's, they they continue on until Brian David Mitchell is found walking with Elizabeth Smart down State Street in Sandy, thinking it's Richard Reese, And he's long since dead because he ends up dying of a brain aneurysm in jail. And, and that was one of the big uh, tensions in there. A really interesting point to that, too, that's very incriminating is when the Richard Reese news broke, it broke on a weekend, and I would be the family spokesperson on the weekend. I typically wanted them to be, you wanted it from the horse's mouth, Debbie, you didn't want to hear from me. And so, but on the weekends to give them a break, I did it. And that's when the Reese news broke, and Ed gave me an idea of what was going on. I did the interviews, and then we talked later, and he said, hey, something kind of strange happened. Mary Catherine snuck in while I was watching you respond to the news, and she said, Dad, why is Richard on TV? He didn't do it. He was a ha- he had been a handyman at the their handyman. house. He wasn't she in the room him. that night, and they let the police know that. So very early on, Mary Catherine dismissed. She she even told her cousin later with no adults around. I don't know why they keep focusing on Richard. He wasn't the guy who did it. 
So she knew Richard. She recognized him. And that's how she could speak definitively. Yeah. Go ahead. I was going to say, Richard was a, a handyman who'd worked on the house for a period of time and knew the kids really well. So she was very familiar with Richard. Here's Angela Reese, who's since passed away, Richard's uh, widow, uh, speaking on to the Ed Yates of KSL 5 TV on the day that Elizabeth Smart was found. She was watching television. I jumped up and I started crying and just, you know, my phone was ringing off the hook and it's a, it's, had she, I'm, I'm extremely, right about this in the book. Did, extremely had she not given him an alibi happy for the smarts. Uh, at all? Did he not have an alibi? Is that, that Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind, only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do? in the face of an international disaster decades in the making. That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Why he was an easy focus for the Salt Lake City uh, Department. Richard had an alibi. They just didn't find it to be very strong. And Angela was a part of it. I, I, my heart breaks you know, for Angela. Even during the, the, the case, she was somebody who was very sincere and... and you know, Ed, Ed really connected with her as well when we met her. Will you stick around? I, we want to continue this conversation. Um, I want to talk, let our listeners know what happened to you after Elizabeth Smart was found and her dad, Ed, gave you a call. <laughs> and that call broke your heart. It just broke your heart. Elizabeth Smart found special coverage with David Dijanovic on KSL News Radio. We're speaking live right now to Chris Thomas. He's the author of a book that was released today. Its title of it is Unexpected. It is about uh, the journey um, to get Elizabeth back home safely. He was the PR person, the public relations person, the point of contact for the press. He was working to insulate the media during that horrific nine months uh, from the family or insulate the family from the media and also dealing with, you know, new details that were coming out from law enforcement. Some of them were just not even accurate. And so he's trying to juggle all of that. We've heard a lot of the story from Elizabeth's point of view, what happened during her captivity. Uh, We haven't heard a lot from what was going on behind the scenes with the family and Chris, uh, Let's just jump right in. What happened? Where were you? What happened with the family when they found out that Elizabeth had been found? So on that day, there had been some negative press, and we were working to respond to that. Uh, nationally, there was quite a bit of interest. And so Ed and I were getting together uh, and, and planning for a press briefing. And he called me uh, a little bit before and said, hey, I'm sorry, I'm probably going to be late. I've been summoned to the Sandy City Police Department. I've been told not to stop and not to call anybody, but I, I thought I'd let you know. And fortuitously, one of the only people I kept in contact with from high school, my high school basketball teammate, Jason Burnett, was a detective with the Sandy City Police Department. Yep. 
And so I called it, started calling Jason incessantly and he finally answered pretty abruptly and he, and, and he said, I can't tell you anything. And, and I said, well, I'd be eternally grateful if you did. And he called me back a little while later and he said, the police chief finally told me to answer the phone because you wouldn't stop calling. And we brought in an indigent uh, teenager that we believe is Elizabeth Smart. And I paused and was just, emotion was just blaring. And I said, Jason, where did you find the body? I mean, at that time, it wasn't real that she would be back. And he said, now she's in the room next to me. And I was able to get a hold of Ed and, and you know, shortly thereafter, they were reunited. But it, it was surreal. Uh, and about 45 minutes before it hit the news and I sat there against the wall and I, I had no idea. It's like a tsunami is about to hit me. And then the story, your story and the journey with the family, a lot of the, you did in the beginning was volunteer. And then, you know, and, you, and I read in your book that you just dedicated so many hours that it was putting a strain on your new marriage. I certainly was taking an emotional toll on you because of all the demands out the day, day after day from the media. Um, you instruct the family, and I think rightfully so, to turn their anger toward, you know, Brian David Mitchell, towards something positive. And so the Amber Alert, getting a national Amber Alert. And I'm calling on you, and I'm calling on Congress, and I'm calling on them to pass the Amber Alert now. Children cannot afford you fumbling around, and that's what you're doing. And so you're working with the White House to get the family back to D.C. for this major announcement about the Amber Alert. And you're trying to insulate Elizabeth from the White House press corps when Ed Smart calls your cell phone and tells you what? That the family's not comfortable with the, the, the direction I was going, that they really feel Elizabeth should be front and center and uh, that – they don't need my help anymore. You got fired. I got fired. You write about this in your book. It was a shocking moment to me. I'd known you for many months, and I'd worked with you so closely. And just for the record, you were phenomenal to work with. Oh, thank you. And when I read that, and you, you saved that nugget for the end, and I wept. I was bawling by the time I finished the book. How did you recover from that you know, with your with the family, it, it was difficult. I, you talk about my wife and being a newlywed, and she was an incredible support, especially at that moment. Uh, and it took some perspective. I was crushed, and at the same time, I had seen what they had been through, and I, I still don't understand. I walked close to them, but I didn't walk in their shoes. And seeing everything that they had gone through. Uh, it, it's easy to be upset and look at it that way. I think I provide this context in the book as well. You have to give a little grace to that. Um, and, and there was an important lesson that I write about that I learned early in my childhood where there was a huge disappointment. And the way I responded to it was to take my proverbial ball and go home. And in this case, I realized like, I, you know, the only person that lost was me when I was a child. And so I, I kept a friendship. The, the smarts, I grew so close to them during this situation. It would have been such a loss. Uh, it would have been justified, but it would have been such a loss to just not have anything to do with them. And and as a result of, of staying in contact and, and remaining friends, it, it led to working with Elizabeth, which has been just an unbelievably, uh, an unbelievable blessing in my life, uh, working with her. And, and, you know, she's like a sister to me. Chris Thomas, thank you for, for joining us. I look forward 
to reading this. It just released today, right? Yes, out today. I Debbie has already read it. She read got the it. early copy. Yeah, but. it's on Amazon. It's on Audible as well. Everyone here sends to listen, and it's my voice. So if my voice doesn't drive you crazy, you can get nine and a half hours more of it. You voiced it? I did. I had to really push the publisher, but I really Wonderful. wanted to do it. Guess what so. I'm listening to on my way home today. <laughs> I've got a credit. You'll hear me really fast, though, if you're like me, because I... 1.4? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, I, don't, I, I don't typically endorse books or anything like that. It's not my thing. But people need to read this. They absolutely oh, need you. to read it. It's so well done and how you also connected several of the experiences during the Elizabeth Smart kidnapping to experiences you had in your childhood um, that actually ended up preparing you to deal with the crush of media and the crisis within the family and the crisis within the crisis. Chris, phenomenally written. Thank you so much for sharing your journey. I know it was a labor of love for you, and I'm sure it was difficult to get this. How many years did it take you to write it? It was about three. Three It was about three. Yeah. It took three years. Chris Thomas, the author of Unexpected, thank you so much for spending so much time with us today. Oh, thank you. Elizabeth Smart Found. Special coverage with David Dijanovic on KSL News Radio. As we wait for Elizabeth Smart to phone in live to the show, we're it's going to be an encore performance right now with author uh, Chris Thomas, who wrote the book Unexpected. It was released today. It's the backstory of finding Elizabeth Smart and growing up in the culture of an American religion. Chris, when this story came out and we learned eventually what happened that Elizabeth, who came from a, a very religious home, her family is very religious, uh, in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, um, and then to be abducted by a religious fanatic, uh, to be indoctrinated uh, during that time and, and brainwashed and the, the horrific aspects of that. Can you, can you talk to us from, from your experience when you were, were basically running the PR for the Smart family during Elizabeth's abduction, what was that like when all these worlds are colliding? Sure, sure. And I, I think, you know, it, and I get into the culture of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints a fair amount. Uh, both uh, the, the part of this book, the unexpected part maybe, is, is some experiences growing up in the culture and how that prepared me for that experience, how the culture uh, played an important role in the search effort and, and in making that such a, a big story. And then... You talk about, you know, toward the end, that was a really complicated situation when um, she was rescued and Brian David Mitchell was arrested. From the Smart family standpoint, it didn't make sense to address the issue of uh, religious fanaticism and and polygamy. Uh, Our focus was on Elizabeth and the fact that she survived it. Uh, But in the book, I do kind of get into that issue. Uh, You know, even Elizabeth said in her own book that, yeah, I call him a fanatic, but really all he cared about was sex and alcohol. You know, it was just a means to get what he wanted. And, and, and I think we see that a lot. We've seen a prolifer- proliferation, there's a word, uh, on Netflix and, and, and Hulu and other places of these uh, docuseries that, that look at the culture of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And they often make out these people who are very isolated, a, a small percentage of a small percentage of, of, of those splinter groups that are crazy and deranged, and, and, and they make it about religion. And, and I really often feel that that is exaggerated at a minimum and oftentimes unfair. So that was something I wanted to address for sure. Your experience as a child growing up in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, you point out several experiences that you had along the way that really helped prepare you to become the main PR person 
for the family to deal with all the media, to deal with the stuff that was going on behind the scenes with the police department, and to deal with their own emotions as they were trying to find Elizabeth alive. And there was one incident that you wrote about when you were a child where you were kind of put in charge of bringing boys who had gotten away from the church back to the church, and you so badly wanted to pay for them to go to a a Utah jazz game. And you finally convinced everybody to go to this jazz game. You didn't end up buying the tickets, although you'd offered to. And then you get to the parking lot to join them uh, to to drive down to the, the jazz game here at the Saul Palace at the time, and they'd left you. Yeah. And I I've thought about that as a child when you get so disappointed. It's almost like, you know, you've just been left out, hung out to dry. And that reminded me of when the Smart family, after she was rescued, Ed called you up and they essentially fired you from the job that you'd held for nine months. Did you make that connection? Because I sure did in reading that book. That's interesting, Debbie. You just brought that up off the air and I I did not. And that's an absolute connection. I I try to be very honest. Uh, That was incredibly disappointing. I mean, to, to provide a little more context on that, I said to my mom, I'm done. I am I'm quitting the church. I'm out. Uh, and because I think of that incident, because when they of left that you incident at that, at that point, and my mom said, "Let's," you know, she was very good about it. It wasn't, "No, you will not." It was, "I think you should think about this. I think you should, you know, let the emotions uh, dissipate, and then and then give this some real thought. And if you make that decision, honey, that's your choice." Uh, which I think was very mature of her. Uh, at the same time, yeah, dealing with disappointment. Uh, I write about uh, my neighbor who was a hidden broken war hero who was an alcoholic and, and having uh, so many different uh, issues with him over the years. You know, he taught me how to have thick skin. And also when I really learned who he was, he taught me how not to judge people, how to how to take things, at, at not take them at face value, but really um, try to avoid the stories we tell ourselves and, and to look beyond that. Chris, we appreciate you joining us. Chris Thomas uh, wrote a memoir. It's called Unexpected, the backstory of finding Elizabeth Smart and growing up in the culture of an American religion. Thank you for joining us. Uh, Debbie's already read the book. I look forward to it, oh, but thank you. Down. I couldn't put it down. I I disappointed myself that I, I, I swallowed like 150 pages in like a day. <laughs> I, was, I, I know you do. And I'm going to go back and read it again. I'm also going to listen to it on Audible because it's in your own voice. And I love that. Thank you. Uh, a woman you know very well, Chris, that you helped bring home 20 years ago. And you worked so hard and you gave everything to Elizabeth Smart calling the show in just a few minutes. Are you going to stick around for that? Absolutely. Right. She is incredible. It's always a treat, whether personally or privately, to hear her speak. Dear Debbie, it's always great to see you. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. Don't miss Cold's new season three, where I look into the unsolved disappearance of Cherie Warren, a woman last seen leaving her job at a Salt Lake City office in 1985. Police cast suspicion on Cherie's estranged husband and boyfriend, but never made any arrests or recovered Cherie's remains. Find Cold season three, The Search for Cherie, anywhere you get your podcasts.